Welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by lead pastor, Chad Peralt. For other podcasts and resources, visit www.vineyardportland.org. New series, um, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, this new series is basically going to be a three-week series, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to run right up into Easter. And uh, the name of the series is called Shadows of Sacrifice. Shadows of Sacrifice, and it's the prophetic nature of the gospel. So we're going to look at how the gospel and the message of the gospel and the sacrifice of Christ leading up to Easter, how that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, how the Old Testament actually points to the gospel, and how the Old Testament in, in all that it did um, was really for one purpose, and that was point to Christ. That the totality of Scripture really points to Jesus. And so this morning, I really want to plunge into this idea of Christ's sacrifice. I really want to dig deep into our hearts this morning. I want us to prepare our hearts to dive into this deep well of what we call the gospel. To dive into this deep well of what we call uh, the sacrifice of Christ, the sacrifice in the service of Christ to humanity. It's so important to understand uh, in, the, in the Old Testament how everything, everything lives in the shadow of the cross. Everything lives in the shadow of the cross. So when Paul talked about what he was presenting to his people, when he was preaching the gospel, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? He said, I came and I presented you of first importance. I presented you of first importance when I came for what I also received. That was Christ crucified. And so this morning... We're going to talk about how the gospel of Christ must always be first and foremost in everything we do as a church. That the gospel of Christ, Christ crucified, must be at the center of all we do. It must be at the very center of our lives because it's at the very center of the word of God. It is what the word of God points to. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to the cross and everything after the cross in the New Testament points back to the cross. So the gospel of Christ is what everything points to. And so the gospel is the center of our worship. The gospel is the center of our faith. The gospel must be central to all that we do as a community of believers in this church. It must be at the very center of our prayer. It must be at the very center of our vocation. It must be at the very center of our lives. It must be at the very center of our worship. It must be at the very center of our thought life. The gospel, Christ crucified, 
at the center of it all. Paul said, I delivered to you as of first importance, not second, not third, not fourth. First, things first, what I received, Christ died for our sin in accordance with the scripture. Christ raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Christ appeared to the twelve, including Cephas, according to the scripture. What are the scriptures that Paul is talking about? He's not talking about the letter he's writing. He's talking about the Old Testament. What is Paul saying? I'm giving you permission to go into the Old Testament and find the gospel. And that's what we're going to do over the next three weeks. We're going to look at the book of Leviticus and we're going to see how it is that the sacrifices and the offerings in the book of Leviticus actually point to Christ. That the purpose of them coming and the purpose of them being ordained by Yahweh for his people was for really one purpose. And that was to display and demonstrate Christ. That the sacrifices and the offerings in the Old Testament did one thing, pointed to the cross. That was why they were given. We talked about how in the Old Testament, uh, back in the fall, about how the feasts, right, pointed to Christ. We talked about Passover. We talked about unleavened bread. We talked about, remind me here, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. We talked about the Feast of Trumpets. We talked about, oh man, where am I? I'm losing myself. Oh, um, yeah. Booths and the Day of Atonement. All of those feasts we looked at and said, okay, these were instituted for one purpose, to point to Christ. And so it is with the sacrifices and the offerings that they are to point to one man. If you think about what John the Baptist said uh, in John 29, when he saw Jesus coming for the first time, what did John the Baptist say? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, for his hearers in that time, if the Jewish people in that time that heard those words had no understanding or had no context in the Old Testament about what that meant, they would have no clue what John was talking about. They would have heard John say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they would look at John and be like, behold the who? Behold the what? Wait, what? what? The Lamb of what? Who does what? John, you're not making any sense. How did the hearers uh, in John's time understand what he was saying? They knew the Old Testament. They understood Passover. They understood the law. They understood the offerings. They understood when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they thought to themselves, Oh my gosh, this is the guy that the Old Testament is talking about. That Jesus did not come in a vacuum for three years and just appear on the earth and perform signs and wonders and die. That he is co-eternal with God, with the Father, in complete agreement always with him. So he agrees in the Father when the Father gives the law, gives the offerings to his people. He understands, the Son understands, these are for me. These are pointing to me when I come. 
So we're going to look at a couple of these this morning. The Old Testament and its types and shadows are constantly pointing to the cross. Everything that takes place before the cross points forward, and everything that takes place after it points backward. So today and through, to, through today and through next week and through the week after, during Easter, we're going to attempt to lay a foundation of a context to uh, initiate a greater appreciation of the prophetic nature of the gospel and Christ's death on our behalf. And we have permission to do this. So let's go there. We're going to hit a lot of text this morning, just so you guys know. If you got your phones out, you can just type these in. If you're, if you're going old school, you're going to have to flip through quick. I'll give you some time to get to these. But I feel like it's so important to present the, fu the fullness of, of the canon of Scripture to, to make a case for what it is that we're doing this morning. That the full canon of Scripture, the truth of God, points to this reality of the foreshadowing of Christ in the Old Testament. So in Colossians 2, chapter 16, this is what Paul says. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of what you eat and what you drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Don't let anyone pass judgment on how you fulfill the law. These are the shadow, the law, of the things to come, which was Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. He is the substance. He is the fulfillment of the shadow, which was the law. Listen to what Jesus says in John 5. John 5, 39. If you want to turn there with me. John 5, 39, 40 to 45. Listen to what uh, Jesus says here, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. Is, John, is Jesus talking about the gospels? No. Is Jesus talking about Paul's letters? No. <laughs> what is Jesus referring to? The Old Testament. He says, you, you, search, you search the scriptures to find life. You search the scriptures to be obedient to God through his commands that brings you life, but yet you reject me. And I have come to fulfill it. I have come and all of the totality of scripture, everything that you've listened to, every story, every law, every ceremony, everything that you've ever grown up with in your culture was for one purpose, it was to uh, herald the coming of the one who's in front of you. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Revelation uh, 19, verse 10. says this, that the testimony of Christ is the spirit of prophecy. 
Think about that. The testimony of Christ is the spirit of prophecy. So whenever we're, whenever we're declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ with our lives, we are, in a sense, fulfilling prophecy. Because Christ comes to fulfill all prophecy. He becomes the greatest prophet. Every prophet prophesied about his coming. So when we declare the gospel, when we speak about Christ, when we display Christ, when we glorify Christ, when we share the gospel with people, what are we doing? We are prophesying. We are prophesying the good news. And what does Paul say the, the, uh, the, the point of prophecy is? To build up and encourage. Build up and encourage the church. Build up and encourage those in your life. How do you build up and encourage people? By prophesying, you speak about the work of Christ. First and foremost, if you're prophesying and Jesus is not at the center then something else is, and sh it shouldn't be. Period. Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When we build up and encourage by prophesying, it is because we are exclaiming and declaring the work of Christ over people's lives. Period. So Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is the one that everything points to. So let's look at these a uh, couple of these different offerings this morning. So I want you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 1. That's in the Old Testament in between uh, Exodus and Numbers. Leviticus chapter 1. Probably not... Probably don't go there a lot. <laughs> but, but let me just say this really quick. I think sometimes we have been, um, we have been uh, convinced by the church culture uh, that uh, the word of God exists for our entertainment. And that preachers and pastors who want to present the word of God want to do it for one reason and one reason only, to entertain those that are sitting in front of them. But that is not the purpose for the word of God. The word of God was not given to men through the Holy Spirit for our entertainment. The Spirit gave the word of God and breathed the word of God into men for our benefit for our good it's not meant to be entertaining so when we go to leviticus 1 yes it's going to be difficult yes it's going to require some work yes it's going to require some study yes it's going to require a little bit of trying to understand that what i'm going to present to you this morning is not going to be on a, on a platter for you to lap up it's going to require you to do some work, to do some study, to, to rely on the Holy Spirit for some revelation. Oftentimes, the Word of God is meant for our entertainment, and it was never meant for that. Let me also say that the Word of God 
is primarily for one purpose, and that is to bring to the fullness the identity of Christ. If we are looking in Scripture to find our identity, we are using Scripture for the wrong reason. The purpose and primary understanding and purpose of Scripture is to bring to fulfillment the identity of Christ, to bring to fulfillment the characteristics and attributes of Yahweh. That is why we search the Scriptures to find Him, not us. In finding Him, He will tell us who we are. But we don't go to Scripture to find out who we are. We go to Scripture to understand who God is and how amazing He is and how holy He is and how righteous He is and how just He is and how loving He is and how merciful He is and how gracious He is and how majestic He is. Those are all things that we desire to understand about the one true God that we worship with our whole life every day. So let's get into Leviticus chapter 1. This first offering that we're going to talk about is what they called a burnt offering. A burnt offering. And I'm going to read part of it and then we're going to go through it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through it, and I'm, I'm not going to lay everything out, but the whole purpose this morning, you guys, here is to understand how this offering points to Christ, how this offering uh, in Christ comes to fulfillment, how when Christ comes, he is the preeminent offering. He is the offering and the sacrifice that surpasses all those before him. So in some sense, the burnt offering represents Christ, but in some sense, when Christ comes, he becomes the perfect burnt offering, okay? So let's look at the burnt offering, and let's look at some of the characteristics. Now understand, we're building up to Easter. We're building up to Easter with this study. We're building up to Christ's ultimate offering on our behalf. Christ dying for us as a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for us. So here we go. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So first of all, here's what we have to understand. This offering uh, it includes an animal. The next one we look at doesn't. But this one includes an animal. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male, listen to this language, a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. So at the entrance of the tabernacle, that is where they would bring it. That's where the bronze altar was. That's where they would lay every sacrifice down to be burned. <clears throat> he would bring it to the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head 
of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar, the bronze altar, the brazen altar, whatever you want to call it, the main altar in which every sacrifice was put on to be burned. <clears throat> that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron and priests shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces. <coughs> uh, uh, sorry, uh, should arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails, which would be their inner parts, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar. That's really key. He shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I'm going to stop there. So it's a pleasing aroma. So I know that sounds weird, but when you think about like 4th of July, right, when you hit the barbecue, when you're in someone's backyard, and you like get there for the first time, right, and you kind of, you're walking up the driveway, and then you feel the, you, or you feel, yeah, you smell, but it, it almost gives you a feeling. You smell, right, the, 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 the burgers, right, the, the hot dogs, right, the, 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 the steak, or whatever is on the grill, man, you're like, oh, man, that tastes good, that smells good, that's going to taste good, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a pleasing aroma to the senses. Well, the, the same was true here for God. It was a pleasing aroma. It wasn't that God was hungry and wanted to eat it. It wasn't that, but it pleased God when he smelled that. Why? Because it was a sign of worship that his people were offering up to him. It was a pleasing offering. And in the same way, Christ is a fragrant aroma. That's a whole other foreshadowing piece, but we're not going to go into that. He is a pleasing aroma offered up to God. So let's, let's look at a couple things here and let's see how they point to Jesus, how they point to the ultimate sacrifice that we're going to celebrate a couple weeks from now. So in this offering, it had to be perfect. With this offering, the offerer would present the animal as a gift. So what we have to understand is that every offering, every sacrifice that was given in the temple, or in this case, in the desert, in the tabernacle, these were all gifts that the worshipers were giving to God. They were holy gifts that they were laying before God. They were offerings and sacrifices that they were laying before God as a means of worship to Him. So they would present this animal as a holy gift to God. And the sacrifice we see had to be without blemish. It had to be spotless, in a sense, perfect. The offerer, in a sense, was uh, declaring with this offering their uncleanness, their unrighteousness. They were offering an animal, a righteous animal, in place of themselves before God. That's why it was considered a sacrifice or an offering or a free gift. It was the righteous 
for the unrighteous. It was them declaring, I need to be made clean. I need to be made righteous before God. And the way I will do that is by presenting this animal before him, this animal that is of great value to me. Typically, when they were offering something to God, it was something that they had a a sense of value for. Like they weren't just throwing away, uh, you know, something that didn't matter to them. That's why God said it had to be perfect. It had to be spotless. It had to be without blemish. Why? Because it actually had to have value to the one that was offering it. It had to be perfect. Turn with me to 1 Peter if you can. Oh, this Bible is just rough shape. Turn with me to 1 Peter if you can, or uh, type it in on whatever you're looking at. 1 Peter 1, verse 18. This is what Peter says here. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I don't want to give you a lot of comment on these scriptures this morning, you guys. I just want these things to kind of speak for themselves. I want this to speak for itself. I don't want to get in the way of this. I just want to be the mouthpiece for God this morning. So I'm not going to say a lot about these scriptures. All I'm going to do is I'm going to present these passages to you and show you how they connect with uh, the sacrifices in Leviticus chapter 1. So Peter says that they are uh, those things that we normally would offer are all perishable. Those gold and silver, even the animals, those were perishable. Those were not lasting. But Christ comes and fulfills this offering by offering himself who is imperishable. The one true spotless, blameless lamb that points back to all of the offerings that your fathers gave Yahweh. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says this. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one boast in the Lord. So Christ comes as the perfect offering and he makes us righteous. He makes us sanctified. He completely redeems us eternally. What the offering did for the in the Old Testament only uh, secured those things for a period of time. They had to continue to offer before God, their sacrifices, in order to continue to remain righteous and accepted by God. But Christ comes and eternally grants us righteousness and sanctification and redemption through his perfect offering. What else do we see about this offering? It was a willing offering. 
It was a willing offering. The offering was not done under compulsion, that the offerer bringing the offering did it on his own accord. He did not uh, do it because he was forced. This was not a specific day like the Day of Atonement where they were told, you have to do this. This was completely under the volition of the, the person bringing the offering. It was his decision to do this for Yahweh on his own accord. It was totally willing. The offerer decides to offer that which is sacrificed and lay down the life of that animal of great value as a means of worship to God. It was his choice. It was his choice. He was willing. Check this out. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me. Why does the Father love me? Because I lay down my life that I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on what? My own accord, willingly. I lay down my life. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Christ is the, the, the uh, preeminent burnt offering because he sacrifices himself willingly under no compulsion, that he is in total agreement with the Father from the beginning of time to do what he's about to do. That in Christ, there is no force in Christ when he goes to the cross, that he is not being manipulated in any way. He's not being forced in any way. That he goes under his own volition, that he lays down his life because he has agreed to do it. Not because he is forced, but he does it on his own accord. As the burnt offering is also done on their own accord. What else? It was an atoning sacrifice. It was an atoning offering. The sacrifice atones for the sin of the one who slays it. And the offerer must lay his hands on the animal. We read it. The offerer has to lay his hands on the animal. He brings the animal to the to the entrance of the, uh, the tabernacle where the altar is, and he has to lay his hands on the animal, and he actually has to kill it. The priests don't do that. The priests take it from there. But the offerer is expected to be the one that actually slays the animal as a means of sacrifice for God, as an offering to God. Similarly, when Christ comes in his ministry and before he goes to the cross, we see multiple people that are, uh, in a sense, they are uh, responsible for Christ going to the cross. We see Jews have their hand in it. We see Gentiles have their hand in it. Romans have their hand in it. Both people groups, Jews and Gentiles, both have their hands in Christ going to the cross. In fact, it actually says in uh, Matthew 26, 50, that when they apprehended Christ, 
that they put their hands on him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. They came up and laid hands on him and seized him. Christ became the burnt offering, the preeminent burnt offering, because he was actually being sacrificed. He was the one being offered by the one, and he was the one that was going to die for the ones that were offering him to God. Those who he, that laid their hands on him, those were the men that he was going to give his life for. Think about that. As the preeminent burnt offering. He lays down his life for the people that laid their hands on him. Ephesians, if you can go there. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 25. Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificially, I might add. That he might, what? Sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spots or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This speaks to the perfect offering, but this also speaks to the atoning part of the offering as well, that Christ comes and lays his life down for his church. And lastly is this. The burnt offering is a whole offering. It's a whole offering. This is, to me, this is the best part. So unlike some of the other offerings, this offering, you guys, this offering, the whole thing had to be put on the altar. I'm going to my text is John 7. John 7. The offering, unlike other offerings that we see, required the whole animal apart from the skin to be put on the, on the table, to be put on the altar as a means of sacrifice. With the other offerings that we're going to look at next week, it was part of the animal. But part of the animal was actually cooked uh, for the enjoyment of the offerer and for the priests. That the offerer would actually enjoy a meal with the offering that they had given. This one, no way. This one, when you're bringing a burnt offering to God, what they said is you got to lay it all down. You got to lay the whole thing on the altar. There is nothing for you to partake in, but it's all for God. It's all his, except for the skin. Once the animal was flayed, the priest uh, would take all of the parts and lay it on the altar. So the burnt offering is symbolic. It's symbolic first of Christ's complete surrender to the Father 
and our complete surrender to Christ. So in the burnt offering, when Christ comes, he fulfills the burnt offering because he's in complete surrender to the Father. He, com- he gives his, up his whole life to God, the whole life on our behalf. And what is our response to that sacrifice? We give our whole life back to him. All of it. That there's not one part of our life that we leave for ourselves. There's not one part of our life that we say God can't have. We don't sit here and go, God, you can have everything but my marriage. God, you can have everything but my finances. God, you can have everything but my vocation. God, you can have everything. I'll I'll allow you to rule in all of my life except for this one area. This is mine. You can't have it. Christ came and was the preeminent burnt offering and gave up his whole life so that in our response to him, we would give our whole life to him. Look at what it says in John chapter 7, verse 28, if you guys can go there with me. John 7, 28, or at least mark it down in your notes. It says, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. He comes from the father. Now, let me just say this. In our response to Christ, this is where it really gets good. In Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. This is what Paul says about our lives and about our response to Christ. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. You have been burnt. (laughs) Your life is no longer yours. And your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him with glory. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that you have died. Your life is no longer yours. You no longer live for worldly desires. You no longer live for worldly passions. You live for Christ. You live for the things that are above He talks about this in Galatians chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but I want to show you uh, some other pieces of this. Galatians 3, verses uh, 25 through 27. But now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, we are no longer under a guardian, which was the law, which is what we're talking about right now in Leviticus. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through the faith 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, and here's where it is, you have put on Christ. You have put on Christ. So as a burnt offering to Christ, when we give our whole lives to Christ, we have put him on, Paul says. We have put him on, that we no longer live for the things of the world. We no longer live for worldly desires. We no longer live in accord with our old passions, that we live for Christ, that we live for the things above, not the things of the earth. And he says, how do you do this? You put off that old self, that old nature, and you put on Christ. And then if you go back to Colossians chapter 3, this is what it looks like. Colossians 3 verse 12. Put on then. Notice the language. He says you've put on Christ in Galatians 3 because you have died to him in his death by your baptism in him. You have died to yourself and now you are alive in Christ. Now you've put on Christ. And so what does this look like? He says Put on then, in Colossians 3.12, put on then, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must give. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. So when you put on Christ, you have peace. When you put on Christ, you forgive. When you put on Christ, you live compassionately. When you put on Christ, you live with humility. When you put on Christ, you live with meekness. You are brought low. When you put on Christ, you uh, are patient. When you put on Christ, you bear with one another. When you die to yourself, that is what you do. As a burnt offering in response to Christ being the burnt offering for you, that is what we do. That is the church. That is our life. That is our response to Christ coming and being the preeminent burnt offering. Really quick, he was also the grain offering. I'm going to take about five minutes for this. I'm not going to get really much into this just because we don't have time. But if we go back to Leviticus chapter 2, we see uh, there was another offering called a grain offering. So I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to just work through a couple points that I think are the most important. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, so this is, non, this is a non-animal offering, this is a grain offering, and a lot of times this was actually used in concert with a burnt offering. So if someone were to bring a burnt offering for God, they would also bring a grain offering as well to him. Whenever, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil 
with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Why was this pleasing? The frankincense. The frankincense. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. So this was an offering that the offerer gave to God, but a portion of it was given to the priests. What we have to understand about the priests is that they did not have land, that everything that they were sustained by was what people brought to them. Everything that people offered up to God, they would get a portion of, and that is how God would uh, supply them, how God would sustain them. That they were in holy service to God, and so that because of that role, everyone else that brought a portion or an offering, a portion of that would be given to the priests for their sustenance. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven, so you can do it in a couple different ways, you could bring flour or you could bring it as a baked offering. If you bring it as a baked offering in the oven, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn it on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So the first thing we have to see about this is that it could be either raw or cooked. You could bring flour or you could bring it as a cooked offering, you know, in bread form, wafer, um, cracker, right? Bread form, wafer, or cracker, okay? So it was the offerer's response to God's faithfulness to, to them in their forgiveness of their sins. So usually the reason why this came with the burnt offering is because they were offering atonement for their sin to be cleansed by God, to be restored in their relationship to Yahweh. So this offering was more of a memorial offering and more of a thankful offering. It was basically them saying, Lord, thank you so much, God, that in your grace, in your love, in your faithfulness, that you forgive us of our iniquity, you forgive us and you wash us clean, that you cleanse us through this offering and that you desire to establish your relationship with me. It was like, Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. God, that even though I don't measure up, even though I can't conform to the ways and who you are in everything I do in my life, but I can offer this as a way to bring me back to you, for you to forgive me, for you to cleanse my soul. And now I'm thanking you by giving you and offering you this grain offering from the produce of my land, which is yours anyway. So a couple things about this, and then we'll be done. It was the best offering. God said, this has got to be the best offering. This offering that was brought to God, it was to be brought with fine flour. No lumps. No inconsistencies. Perfect. The best. It was the best best offering. It was, it was kind of like in the burnt offering, the perfect offering. It was the best. Nothing less would do for Yahweh. It had to be the best. The best and finest flour 
points to Christ in that his sacrifice was preeminent and it surpassed every other sacrifice before it. I want you to look at Colossians chapter 1. We're in Colossians a lot with this. It's just, it's just amazing. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. I hope uh, I'm presenting to you um, and, and, and building a case in your mind uh, for these things this morning. Colossians 1, 17 to 20. Wow. This is what Paul says. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be what? Preeminent, that he in everything surpasses all things. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What is Christ? He is preeminent in all things. He is the best offering that can be offered on our behalf. What else? It was an offering that was made with unleavened bread. We're going to skip down to unleavened, Deb, unleavened bread. It was an unleavened offering. And, and we know from Scripture that leaven, if you guys remember from past the, the, uh, the, the talks that we, we did about the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, we understood leaven to be uh, sort of symbolic of uh, sin or decay or corruption or pride. And so Jesus comes as the unleavened sacrifice. He comes as the preeminent grain offering that is truly unleavened, that when we think about the sacrifice of Christ and when we celebrate Easter in a couple weeks, that we see Christ as the perfect grain offering, the perfect offering made with the best of the best. He is the fine flower. He is the unblemished lamb. He is the one without inconsistency, the one with imperfections, without imperfections. He is the one, the best, the only that God would accept on our behalf. And he is unleavened. He is sinless. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, Paul says that Christ comes, the one who knew no sin, to become sin so that we could be what? The righteousness of God. So the righteousness of Christ is accredited to us and our sin he takes on himself and pays the penalty for on our behalf so that we are no longer under that penalty. We no longer have a debt against us, but he has paid it in full. He's redeemed us and he's called us righteous. That's the gospel. That is the prophetic nature of the gospel. Christ comes as the unleavened offering. Sinless. Righteous. Colossians 1.22, and I'm going to end here this morning. Back in there. I should have just kept my finger in there. Colossians 1.22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you 
holy and blameless and above reproach. He has provided for you a, a life of being holy and blameless and above reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So Christ as the unleavened, perfect offering, the sinless offering, now presents us to the Father as blameless and spotless and without sin and righteous. It is only through his perfect offering that that can be accomplished. It is only become because he becomes the preeminent grain offering for us in our place, the sinless sacrifice for us that we get to be presented before God as holy and blameless, set apart, righteous in his eyes. If that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what will. That is the hope of the gospel of Christ. That is the story of Christ. That is the reality that we get to live with every single day when we put our feet on the floor. That God, you have come, and as if I remain in faith to you, if I remain in the faith and I continue to believe in you as the Son of God that came and died for me, that I will continually be presented by Christ to the Father as holy, set apart, blameless, righteous. Wow. The gospel is all over the Old Testament. It's all over it. It's in the feasts. It's in the law. It's in the sacrifices. Its sole purpose is to point to Jesus. And if we can understand that a little bit better, man, that gives us so much hope, not only for our lives, but for those that we encounter every single day, that there is an answer for you. There is an answer for the world who's looking for something. There's an answer to a world that's hungry for something, an answer to the world that's thirsty and hungering for righteousness, that wants to live a life that they can, they can live a life with a clear conscience. They can live a life of holiness unto God and that we can present this message the gospel to them and bring them into the family of God so that they can know him and love him and worship him and and live a life honoring to him there's a world out there that is searching for significance and only the gospel can bring it and that is what we have and that is what we declare and that is what we will share. Amen. Let's stand this way.